0: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash membership.
1: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 29 is, What is the self? This discussion of Soren Kierkegaard's The Sickness Unto Death. For a link to that text, discussion, and other information, please check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com. My name is Mark Linton Meyer, apparently in despair from Madison, Wisconsin.
2: This is Seth Paskin, aesthetically reflecting from Austin, Texas. And this is Wes All One
0: in despair that Mark took despairing uh, in Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts.
2: <laughs> there are many ways to despair, Wes. <laughs>
3: and this is Daniel Horn suspending his ethics in San Francisco, California.
2: Very nice. Fantastic.
1: So, Daniel is our special guest. And he was someone who just posted smart stuff on PartiallyExaminedLife.com and uh, requested Kierkegaard. And I said, hey, well, why don't you come do it with us? Before you tell us about yourself a little, I want to test you. It's pop quiz time.
3: Sure. I thought we were doing Schopenhauer, but okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Daniel, what is the first ground rule for our discussion?
3: Oh, man. Oh, this is awful. Um, Don't worry. I don't really, I don't know it either. uh, No name dropping.
1: No name-dropping. Well, that's one of them.
3: Ah, dear. Okay, not this
1: No first. fair name-dropping in lieu of making your point. Do not say, you would understand me if you only read that recent expose by Bob Woodward and Eric R. Douglas, Why Does West Hate Buddhism? That's
3: right. <laughs> I, I think another one may be, <laughs> I think another one is we are going to assume that no one listening to this podcast has done any of the reading or is even familiar with the subject, so we are going to try to keep that in mind as we talk about it.
1: That was much more cogently put than <laughs> I usually <laughs> state it. And do you remember the last one? Um, we, oh It's the meaningless one.
3: I only know that we shall we shall only do what it is we're not going to do when we find it might be entertaining.
2: Yeah, let's just say the blank.
3: We'll just fill in the blank with whatever that might that's be. That's
2: actually a very Kierkegaardian way of saying that. We will only be who we are when now we're not trying to be who we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
1: Yes, that's going to be number three for today.
2: Okay. All right, so what is your deal,
1: Daniel? Just tell the people briefly.
3: Sure. Well, I am essentially a big fan of the show, and I'm essentially the Courtney Cox that you guys as Bruce Springsteen have uh, invited (laughs) up onto the stage. Um, to, to go ahead and dance with you guys for a while. little 80s reference there. Uh, I may be aging myself. But no, but I've been following your guys' show for, I think, the better part of a year now. And it came to me at just the same time that I was taking up an amateur interest in philosophy. So you guys were among the many secondary sources I was relying upon to try and get some sort of a grounding in what these various people were talking about and whether or not they might have anything to say to me. But I have absolutely no philosophical training. I'm a lawyer by profession. So other than the fact that I have the ability to uh, parse text and enjoy argument, I really don't know how much I bring to the game here. But I would like to think that with respect to Kierkegaard, he's so much more a literary figure as much as a philosophical one. I'd like to think that perhaps what he had to say was meant to be digested by uh, folks who didn't necessarily have deep philosophical training.
2: Daniel, what kind of law do you practice?
3: Immigration law.
2: Oh, fantastic. Interesting.
3: It's very transactional, very dull. But, uh, it's the sort of thing that I sort of went into politically, so I get to feel good about what I do every day.
1: So, who wants to do the quick summary of The Sickness Unto Death? You could let Daniel do it. Oh, man. Well, he's prepared, I bet. If
0: Daniel's what? prepared, I, I vote for Daniel.
3: <sighs> the Sickness Unto Death is essentially Kierkegaard's attempt to get people to understand that despair is something that is going to impact everyone, whether they know it or not, and that What causes despair is ultimately an imbalance in the makeup of the self, and the only way to cure despair is through faith in God. He goes on to describe that the self has different aspects that are essentially syntheses of different polarities, right, between the infinite and the finite, the temporal and the internal, and between necessity and possibility, but ultimately, I get the sense that these polarities that he poses are, to some degree, a bit of a con job on Hegel. I've always thought that he was a deep ironist, and that a lot of the first half of the book is really trying to pose a kind of Hegelian structure that he ultimately tears down in the second half of the book. But that ultimately, the thesis of the book is that despair is inherent to the human condition based upon the way that the self is constructed, and that the only way to really break through despair is to recognize that you are a self-relation, that your identity is essentially a self relation between your different polarities and the only way to ground that is to recognize that you have to be grounded in the being that created you to wit god and unless you do that through faith you're always going to be stuck in despair
1: that's good it's concise there were sort of two levels here that i was getting out of it one is this thing that you hear today from christians which is if you're not christian if you don't believe in god well you're really sad you might not want to admit it to yourself but you are really sad think about it Reflect upon it. And in fact, if you're too clueless to realize that you're really sad and that there's a hole in your life, then there's really a problem there. Like, is it, at least if you realize that there's a problem there, you're, you can maybe start to recover. But if you're so pathetic as to think you can just deny the whole thing, then you're, you're ignoring yourself. Anyway, so it's that kind of really irritating argument that I hear today. But, Yet it's dressed up in this crazy-ass, Hegel-influenced language, which is why I picked the question, what is the self? Because all the ways of being in despair are given by his conception of the dynamic of self. Like, are you denying what you are? Or you think that you're something you're not? You're denying that you could be anything? You're denying the immortal part of yourself? There's all these variations on this.
3: Right, and just to follow up on that, perhaps one thing I could have inserted, uh, that he identifies essentially three different types of despair, right? One is being unaware of the fact that you're even in despair. The second is recognizing that you have despair within yourself, but ultimately feeling that you're too weak to be able to come to grips with how to pull yourself out of it. And then ultimately sort of being in this pent-up state of reserve that Kierkegaard refers to. And then finally, just rejecting it outright in defiance, right? Just saying, this is nonsense. I can't possibly accept these concepts. And so therefore, I'm just going to reject them outright. And it's important to Kierkegaard to state that these are essentially escalating levels of despair, right? That when he says that there are three different types of despair, the metaphor I bring to it are sort of uh, colors on on a color spectrum. You know, if you think of wavelengths of light on a color spectrum that goes from red to indigo and the wavelength increases the higher the despair gets. But that one kind of despair is definitely worse than another, right? That in one sense, innocence, at least in the sense of uh, pagan innocence, right? Not being aware of the fact that there is this concept of Christianity or not really having thought about it is less offensive. It's less bad a sin. It's
1: it's less bad a sin, but at the same time, it's further from grace, right? At least, again, if you realize if you're – in fact, for each of these types, there are a few subtypes, and just to bring one up, this whole uh, denial – I mean, yes, there's, you could deny and say the whole thing is bullshit, but you could also admit that there is a God, but sort of defy him and say, you know, any God that would create a world like this is a bastard. You know, that kind of, you could, in fact, be a despairing Christian. And even though that's a bigger sin, because you really realize what you're doing, according to him, it's kind of closer to grace, because you could change your mind about that.
3: The way Kierkegaard described it, I believe, is that if anyone is truly going to become a Christian... And I think this is something that differentiates Kierkegaard from perhaps the type of smug Christians that you may have heard uttering these things about how you're in despair if you don't accept God into your life and that sort of thing. Is that to hear Kierkegaard tell it, this process of working your way through despair from essentially ignorance into defiance is a process that everyone has to go through in order to break through to the other side. And I know that we're not supposed to be name dropping, but I'm hoping that we can refer to Hegel in this because you guys have done an episode on Hegel. In the Hegel episode, Mark, you had given a brief description of Hegel's description of the master-slave relationship and the conception of self. And I get the sense that without necessarily coming right out and saying so, this really helps define the way Kierkegaard thinks of the relationship between the despairing sinner and God, which is to say – You engage in this kind of master-slave relationship in relating yourself to this higher being. And as I understand, the struggle between the despairing sinner and God is one where you first need to become aware of it, and then you start to really wonder if you can actually meet the standard that's set by God. And the more you reflect upon that, you are going to ultimately have to reach a point where you wonder – if this is even worth it, if this is even possible, if this is even true. But ultimately, you have to break through that to get to the other side, which is finally acceptance, which not everybody does, right? You very much get the sense from Kierkegaard that the path is wide, but the gate is narrow.
1: I think Kierkegaard is actually clearer in this talk of self by far than Hegel Mm -hmm. is. So this is a good way of introducing that. We are going to do another Hegel episode right on this part of the phenomenology, which is his early, the good Hegel (laughs) I I would say the characterization that we've given this for this on past episodes is just that unlike an English utilitarian, say, that thinks that we are all just these little balls of selfishness that have to establish our duties and bounds toward each other, Hegel has a view of self that says... To start with, we're all just kind of part of the mass, and we only gradually develop a sense of self, and the way we develop it initially is other people treating us certain ways. That's how you learn about yourself. You're not born with this subjectivity. It's because other people treat you in certain ways, and that sort of creates this objective image of you, which you can then reflect on and decide whether that's right, maybe, you know, if you are actually develop a full sense of self, and then you can self-determine. So Kierkegaard is definitely following in that tradition that most people don't have a sense of self at all. They're just big slugs, and go along with the crowd, whatever. And then, like you said, Daniel, the twist here is that it's not just other people treating you certain ways, but it's somehow God treating you a certain way that is supposed to ultimately determine your true self. And there are issues with that, of course, because people treating you certain ways, it's obvious they're standing in front of you talking to you. Whereas with God, maybe you're making it up just to briefly characterize Hegel.
2: I don't think we're going to gain anything by briefly characterizing Hegel. In order for this to make sense of what Kierkegaard's talking about. We have to at least work through his idea of the self. This book opens with one of the most enigmatic sentences, I think, in the history of philosophy. Part first, section one, that despair is the sickness unto death. Man is spirit, but what is spirit? Spirit is the self, but what is the self? And here is the magical sentence. I can only imagine what this sounds like in German or Danish. The self is a relation which relates itself to its own self. Or it is that in the relation, which accounts for it, that the relation relates itself to its own self. The self is not a, the relation, but consists in the fact that the relation relates itself to its own self. <laughs> now, I spent a fair amount of time trying to puzzle that one out. And I have to say, um, I struggled quite a bit trying to understand what he was getting at. Is at one point, he contrasts this with, say, the mind and the body, I think, or the soul and the body. And he says, you know, you can think about a relation between the soul and the body, but getting caught up in that is not the same thing as the relation relating to itself.
0: Yeah, I think you take the dyad, the relationship between soul and body, and then you do another self-relation of that. So instead of the self simply being this I guess, maybe spirit inhabiting a body or or the relationship between spirit and body. It's another level upon that where the dyad is self-related in some way. And I think there the idea is that God comes in and provides the grounds for that self-relation. And that's why he wants to take it up another level, let's say.
1: I like the interpretation that he's, he's making fun of Hegel here. That this whole <laughs> essay is presented <laughs> under a pseudonym, Anticlimacus which uh, he has a few different pseudonyms he published under, and he would do stuff like publish three books on the same day under different pseudonyms that kind of contradict each other (laughs) in part. And the way he characterized some of his pseudonyms, why he would do this is Anticlimacus is supposed to be somebody that is more spiritually developed than yes yeah. Well,
3: and Anticlimacus was meant to be a riff on a prior pseudonym he had used in a prior work of Johannes yes. Clamacus, right? And uh, I believe Johannes Clamacus was originally, I mean, in history, was some sort of, uh, I think, medieval Syrian Christian monk. And the idea was that he was uh, John of the Ladder, right? That's Clamacus in Latin. And... Uh, the idea was, was that this is a person who's, who's kind of gradually building this sort of ladder to heaven. But the tone that he'd taken with that pseudonym was really one of kind of someone who's not a very good Christian or someone who's not even a Christian at all. But the idea is now with the six of some to death, he wanted to pose a different type of character. The point of Anticlimacus was to be able to take an ultra-Christian stance toward this, but it's not actually speaking for Kierkegaard as such. Part of Kierkegaard's whole theory of literature, and he certainly didn't see himself as a philosopher. He saw himself largely as opposed to philosophers. A Christian poet. That, right. I think in uh, and in Fear and Troubling, I think he just referred to himself as a freelancer. Right. I think the way we might think of him today is a kind of a social critic. Perhaps he's the anti-Christopher Hitchens in in the sense that he doesn't see himself as an academic. He doesn't see himself as a churchman.
0: And insofar as he's a pamphleteer, a blogger maybe.
3: Yeah, it's a good point. He sees his role as someone who is free, that he's got the luxury of being able to say what he feels, and whether or not anyone reads him is sort of besides the point, but at least it gives him the freedom to speak the truth that he doesn't really have any other agenda.
0: Do you want to say why he has that luxury? We didn't do a bio, so maybe we should throw in elements of that here.
1: Oh, this is all to, to explain the one sentence that Seth brought up.
0: <laughs> well, my advice is continue with a little bio, right. and then I'll get it. And then we'll come back to the sentence, and we can read it on right. both levels. We can take it seriously, and then we can look at the parody of Hegel part of this. Um, right. It's stylistically but, yeah, I, I, a period. I, I think by way of biography and the uh, pseudonyms, this is I think important. it will
3: help attune our sensibilities, to use another <laughs> Kierkegaardian concept here, if we, if we get into the biography here. So Kierkegaard was born in 1813 in Copenhagen, died at the age of 42, very young, in 1855. As Soren's father, who had a very strong influence in Soren's sensibilities growing up as a child, had started out very dirt poor, had made his way you know, largely through good fortune, but also a kind of force of will into uh, becoming quite wealthy. But he had a very pietistic sensibility, very strict sensibility. But as I believe as a young man, when he was still a tending sheep out in rural Denmark in the cold, he had at one point cursed God. And this apparently left a very strong mark on Michael Kierkegaard's sensibilities because he had felt that he had forever after cursed his own family and cursed his own progeny by having cursed God earlier. And I think he started to see his fears realized when I think five of his seven children all died at very young ages. Of the seven children he had, only two of the sons, Peter Kierkegaard and Soren Kierkegaard, went on to reach adulthood. And even then, at least Soren sounds like he was a fairly sickly child. He was afflicted with scoliosis. I think he spent like four days in the Danish military after having been conscripted and was kicked out for having been physically unfit. But he was raised in wealth. He went to the finest kind of private school, went off to the University of Copenhagen. He earned the equivalent of a, of a PhD degree in philosophy. And his dissertation that he defended in order to get his magister certificate was on the concept of irony. And its thesis was essentially that Socrates should be seen primarily as an ironist. And the reason why that's important is that I think Soren Kierkegaard's own conception of truth While very strictly guided by this kind of dour Christian sensibility, also felt that truth itself was somewhat unknowable, that objective truth was impossible to get at, that it might not even be a coherent concept. And the only way to get people to understand that is to break down their sense of what truth is. And this is why Kierkegaard was somewhat obsessed with Socrates. I think he thought of himself to some degree as a modern-day Socrates. And I think he sees his whole role as somewhat to use irony as a tool to get people to break down their assumptions. He was strongly opposed to the way philosophy was taught at the time, which is that it was thoroughly and absolutely dominated by Hegel. And what defines Hegel, if nothing else, is that he's trying to build a system, right? He's trying to build a philosophical theory of everything. And this is completely opposed to what Kierkegaard thought was possible. First of all, he thought he was anti- But I think he also thought it just wasn't true. It just wasn't sensible. He wanted to make sure that as he wrote all of his various publications that no one could actually aggregate them and to say, this is what Kierkegaard says on X. This is Kierkegaard's system. He wanted to get away from that. And so, therefore, the use of pseudonyms was in part to be able to allow him to take positions that he wasn't actively advocating because his point wasn't to get you to believe what he said. His point was to try and get you to question what you thought you already knew. He wanted to make sure he could put on a different mask every time he wrote a different book.
0: So he takes an
3: ironic distance towards his own claims. Very good. That's exactly right. And also that he himself could not be pegged down. He wanted to break down systems. He didn't want to build them up. And I, I think he found that a useful tool to make that happen.
1: Yeah. Relating to how much he seems to go on and on in any one of these essays, I also saw a strong, the influence of sermons. Yes. <laughs> it amazes me that people who lecture in churches can week after week and after week and after, after week find more things to talk about when they're just talking really about the same thing. You know, they're, they're espousing the same creed. And he very much takes that. You know, Fear and Trembling is just taking the story of Abraham and just meditating on it and giving five different interpretations of it and then just think about what Abraham was thinking at the time God asked, you know, and and bringing in uh, related literary references and comparing those. It's a very meditational way of doing philosophy rather than, here's my thesis, now I'm going to argue for it. Yes, Hegel can be very long-winged as well, but not rambling in this way. I can see why people often edit down Kierkegaard's works because they lend themselves to that. It seems to break into bite-sized pieces very nicely.
2: So I think this is probably the principal source of my resistance to Kierkegaard in general, is that if it's true that he was maintaining this ironic distance and saw himself as kind of a contemporary Socrates, and he basically uses this lifetime of work and pseudonyms to try to get people to question... You know, engage their own self in questioning. You would have to live a long time, be very conscientious, and be ridiculously smart to be persuaded and influenced by somebody like Kierkegaard because his this is not easy reading, and I can only imagine the project of being persuasive to a larger public audience via the written word over a series of years, you know, creating this kind of dialogue between characters. And I'm curious, I I didn't do the research, but he obviously was ridiculously influential to the vast majority of at least European philosophers who immediately followed him. But I wonder how popular and influential was he during the time he was writing. Yeah, he wasn't. He absolutely and utterly wasn't. Because he didn't work at
3: a university, he didn't have a position within the church, although this is a guy with a PhD in theology, right? So he could have gone those paths, but his wealth allowed him to avoid doing it. Because ideologically, he felt that academia was completely passionless and banal, and because he felt the church was thoroughly corrupt. And I don't mean corrupt in the way that, say, the Catholic Church was accused of having been corrupt by Luther. He thought that ultimately everyone had a very smug and self-satisfied sense of what Christianity was. That Christianity was essentially a lifestyle, right? You're raised a Christian. You are baptized at a church. You go to church every Sunday. You go ahead and go through some motions. You say, oh, great. Heaven sounds very nice. I'll, you know, as long as I obey the laws and don't be an actively mean person. God seems like he's a nice enough guy too, so I'll go through all of that and I'll ultimately go to heaven. Kierkegaard just, that did not meet with his sensibility, and he actually frittered away all of his fortune publishing his body of work. But a lot of these publications sold almost nothing. He sort of came into vogue posthumously. He found his way into translation into German at about the same time that there were a lot of debates on Christianity going on within Germany on the direction of Protestantism. That ultimately spread out to, let's say, like a a young Martin Heidegger, who started out in uh, a Catholic seminary, as I understand it. Nietzsche was apparently vaguely acquainted with Kierkegaard in the later stages of his life.
0: There's some stylistic kinship there, too.
3: Right, right. But I think you raise a good point, Seth. It's not for everyone. You know, I think Wittgenstein opened up the Tractatus with this comment that this book is really only for people who already have some sense of what I'm already talking about. I wonder if Kierkegaard is almost speaking more to a kind of uh, critical sensibility
2: saying, you know, is it just me or is this Hegelian stuff really deeply flawed? Even when I was in school, I avoided and resisted reading Kierkegaard. And I think Part of the reason was that you have to take up the whole study of the totality of his works almost, or his position. He's not a philosopher that lends himself to, say, peace part interpretation, which makes jumping into the sickness unto death. So I led the discussion by saying, this sentence completely perplexes me. Now, on the one hand, that sentence completely perplexes me. On the other hand... I only have the text to work from because I didn't go back and read the collected works and study the biography of Kierkegaard. And as we know that for him, biography was very important and reading philosophers, like he was very interested and thought it was very important that philosophers, the way they lived was a reflection, should be a reflection of what their philosophical systems were. But to some degree, there has to be meaning in what he's saying and there has to be a reason he's saying this. There could be multiple meanings and it could be ironic, but... I also think that his points about the need for people to question the fact that the self is a relation between things, this notion of infinitude, infinitude, and so forth, and that he's trying to lead you to some understanding of your relationship to God. In that context, the sentence does mean something, and it does mean something that we can think about and talk about philosophically just on the merits of the text. My fear is that the next two hours is going to be people saying... Yeah, well, but in this other thing, he says this, and we have to understand this in contrast to this, his relationship to his mother, or (laughs) what, you know, Johannes de Silencio says in such and such a passage. And if if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm not going to have much to contribute. So, but it's an interesting issue, whether you can take the text and read it kind of as a standalone, or do you need this whole biography in order to to make sense of it?
1: Let me just jump in. Again, I, I think this is like a sermon, and I think it does make sense as a standalone, I think that he wrote from these different points of views to some extent to have different stylistic approaches for different audiences, right? He published some pamphlets, he published some long works, he published some fiction. Like it was not all aimed at the same group and it was not supposed to be something that, again, like Daniel said, that he didn't want people to follow him and read everything that he wrote. In fact, he approaches the same problems again and again from slightly different takes. You know, like someone giving sermons would, so that it's supposed to be meaningful in itself. So this is 1849. This is one of his last works. He died in 1851. This is him at his most mature, whereas earlier he was sort of playing around with these other things, writing about opera and writing about uh, the aesthetic life and things like this. This is the big time sermonizing.
3: I feel like, to some degree, I felt a little bit of relief when I got the sense that there is this whole theory that says that he's joking. There are other people, by the way, I think you guys have heard of Hubert Dreyfus, a philosophy professor at UC Berkeley, a big Heideggerian scholar. He has absolutely no use for the idea that this is all just sort of comedy and mockery and irony. He really does want to take the text of this book at face value.
1: Yes, but you don't think the style, because he doesn't continue this opaquely through the rest of this. It's a very understandable work.
3: That's right. But at the same time, this is kind of laying the foundation for the entire rest of the book, that effectively this is a kind of a table of contents the way he's breaking this down. And because he's compressing so much of what he's going to go on to say in one paragraph, you're a little bit lost. But just to take it at its word, here's how I see this concept of the self relating to itself. What he means is that the self is not just a combination of body and soul. It's not a compound like hydrogen and oxygen coming together and forming a molecule. That it's a process. It's a dialectic. To say that the self relating to itself is not just this absurd concept, what it means is it's that it's your interiority matching with your exteriority. In other words, it's what you believe and what you think matched against how you comport yourself in the world. The self relating to itself means how do you match your individual sensibilities and your individual subjective sense of what ought to be done or what's true with how you actually act in the world. When he says that the relation relates to itself and this is the positive third, this is the self. But what he means by that is that just to say that there's soul and body, that's not the self. In fact, it says here, the text. A human being is yeah. a synthesis of the infinite and the finite, of the temporal and the eternal, of freedom and necessity. In short, a synthesis. And now, by the way, when I say that this is sort of a table of contents for the rest of the book, notice that he actually explodes out these concepts later on in the book, right? As you know, What infinite and finite means, temporal and eternal. A synthesis is a relationship between two terms. Looked at this way, a human being is not yet a self. In other words, you shouldn't look at these as, as kind of a static, it's not like two Legos being snapped together and saying, oh, body and soul, this is the self. But rather that it's the way in which your soul, relates to your body, the way that your sensibilities of the infinite match to your the amount of time you have on earth, the way that your historicity, your necessity, you know, what makes you historically yourself matches to your possibilities, what you think you can do. And so that ultimately the relation is the self.
2: I think that's a really key point. And I want to just ask the assemblage here. If we take what Daniel just said, that the self is a relation and not a thing, so to speak, or at least not a, a substance like we've traditionally thought about it. Is that a twist on Hegel, or is that something new and different that he's adding to the discussion?
0: I think part of it is he wants to combat that ancient Greek notion of virtue, and he's combating it with a sense of personal responsibility. There's something passive about just talking about a self as a, call it, relation of spirit and body or mind and body. So where Aristotle talked about, for instance, virtues, which were sort of states of the soul, and to a large extent, there's a lot of determinism there, a lot dependent upon your childhood, sort of like a early psychology, let's say... I think Kierkegaard wants to get to this transcendent relationship, which is above that. This sort of, you know, you take the dyad of spirit and body and then you give it another level of self-relation. And as Daniel was mentioning, it has a lot to do with constantly renewing your will to live in a certain way involving faith as something that's positive in the sense of it's not inertial. You don't just decide to believe in God, let's say, as the grounds, you know, he calls it the sort of grounds of that relationship and then you coast. It constantly involves this effort or activity. So it's a lot different than just saying, I have a certain character trait, which I could call a virtue, or, you know, I go to church every day, I have certain habits. It's this idea of ultimate responsibility and activity, and I think that's why it's important here.
1: He talks about, if you just conceive a relation between body and soul, for instance, and we've run in this in other metaphysical discussions, when you talk about, like, what is a relation? Well, that seems like it's a third thing between these two things. But well, then wouldn't you need another thing to connect the first thing to the relation to the third thing? Like, if a relation was just a passive thing like that, then you would have that sort of infinite regress problem. And so he's very against this kind of metaphysical analysis. He wants to give a practical analysis, that when we say that I am both matter and mind or something like that, then the realization of what that means in practical terms is the activity of coming to know myself in both of those aspects. And he says the self is spirit, using this Hegelian term, which the spirit, like you were saying, is, I mean, it's the thing that moves. It's an activity. Yes.
2: yes, so that's, I think, the key point. And I guess I was trying to tease that out. Kierkegaard's notion of the self, as it's described in here, whether you take this sentence or even later on, It's essential to the discussion throughout the book that the self is this relation between these two other terms. And a relation is not a thing in the way that those other two terms are things or it's not a state. It's a dynamic. The self is constantly positioned between two other terms. And there's lots and lots of different oppositions that he brings into the discussion. But in essence, the self doesn't exist without the opposition between those two things. But it is the tension between those two things. And it's the fact that it exists in that state of tension. And that's very dynamic that I think is different than a lot of the other conceptions of the self being eternal, you know, an eternal soul or a thing in a kind of Cartesian sense. Mm
0: -hmm. And by the way, this is his sort of variation on Hegel's self-consciousness that's right. right exactly so he's getting at a very basic notion of self as self-relation
1: as in that reflective component mm-hmm. the relation relates itself to its own self <laughs> so it's not even just the relation connecting mind and body for instance but it's a reflection upon the relation it's not even just the relation, the relation Yeah, you it, always, relates itself with, to its with own the notion self. of
0: self-consciousness you always get into that regress of you know consciousness of consciousness of consciousness and so on
3: well and what's important is that, that that's not just attention Which sort of implies that there's this constantness to it, right? It's an activity that one has to engage in, which is why I think Kierkegaard repeatedly throughout the book points out that a lot of people haven't even developed a self, right? They're born, they live their lives, they die as a member of the crowd, never having developed a self in the first place. And that this is actually the most common form of despair because people are not willing to go through that activity. Just like jogging is an activity or brushing your teeth is an activity. Yeah. It's, it's something you have to engage in through force of will. Yeah, it doesn't um, beat like your heart beats. It's something that you do or choose not to do.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode preview. I know it stops just when things were getting really good, so please go download the full episode. You can purchase it in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com store, where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our Hefty Back catalog, a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash membership for details.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.